Right, good morning. Uh, everybody should have a sheet, a study guide at the top. It says 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. If you don't have one, maybe you can throw a hand up. There's plenty to go around, I believe. Okay, I think we're good. Y'all don't have one back there? Thank you. you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to 1 John. Most of you know this, but there's a, a few new faces around. We're um, walking through 1 John right now together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Walking through 1 John together as a church. We're just going passage by passage. And the place that we land under God's sovereignty is 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 11 is where we're going to go today, okay? So let me, pr- let me pray for us. And then we'll read this passage of Scripture. And then we'll walk in it together, okay? Let's pray. Pray with me, please. Father, thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for revealing Yourself to us, Lord. And Lord, thank You for not leaving us to all the confusion of worldly wisdom, but for revealing Yourself to us in Your Word, God, that we might know You, we might know Your will. God, I just pray that you, you do what only You can do, God, that supernatural act where You, by Your Spirit, teach us, God, Your Word. So God, please, through, through this means of preaching and through this means of hearing Your Word, of reading it together, God, I pray that You help us to see. Open our spiritual eyes, God, that we might see. God, so much of, of where You have us in Your Word this morning, it has such eternal consequence, Lord, and I pray, God, that You would help. Lord, this morning, if there's any among us, God, that need to be disturbed over the state of their soul, God, I pray that You, by Your Spirit, would disturb them. And God, for all who need to be comforted, And encourage God in their soul. I pray that you would do it, Lord. God, as we open your word, do this, please. Lord, you said that these things are written for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of your scriptures, might have hope. Lord, bring that about through your written word. Help us, Lord. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, read it with me. Verse 3, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word... Truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. At the top of your study guide you have there, it says, Profession of faith, genuine or counterfeit. And the reason for that is because obviously in this passage of Scripture that we're in this morning, there's a big focus on assurance of your salvation. You have an assurance of salvation, whether it's genuine or whether it's counterfeit. There's a lot here about uh, what some people call true and false conversion. There are true conversions, there are false conversions. People who profess the name of Christ and yet true and false conversion. So this passage is a lot about that. So let me ask you a question just at the beginning here. What do you think sparked an interest of these ideas in the mind of John and the people that John's writing to? What do you think sparked an interest in these ideas, these truths about true and false conversion? Would you think about that for a minute? What made them so concerned about this that it's all over the letter? So here's some things we know. We know if you just read through this letter and you're trying to ask yourself, what's the problem here? What's he addressing? We know that there's false teachers that have come among this group of people, this group of believers. And these false teachers have taught false things about Jesus. And there's many people, many people who are, who are at least they thought a part of them, who have gone after the false teachers, who have gone astray. They've stepped away from the fellowship of the saints. And so John, in this letter, gives his assessment of that situation. John writes this letter and says, hey, here's what's happening. Let me tell you what's happening. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. In reference to the people that have gone after the false teachers, the people that have left the fellowship of the saints, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so the reality is here is these, John's assessment of the situation is these people that you thought were of you but left, they were never of you. These people that you thought were a part of you, they were actually never a part of you. They proved that by leaving. They proved that they were never a part. They were false Converts. That's who these people were. False converts. And so, so that assessment that these people were false converts, that begs the question, right? And the question is this. Well, how do we know? How do we know who are true and false converts? You know, you got these people, we thought they were among us, but how do we know who are true and false converts? Or more personally, how do I know? How do I know if I'm a true or a false convert? And so John writes this letter. And in this letter, he's going to answer that question. John mainly shows in this letter the difference between true and false conversion through a doctrinal test, which is what does someone believe, especially about Jesus? And he does it through action test. What does someone's life look, look like in light of the gospel? Does it look like someone who has been truly and genuinely converted. And the section that we're in doesn't, doesn't concentrate, this first chapter 2, verse 3 through 11, it doesn't concentrate on the doctrinal test. That's coming in chapter 2. But rather it concentrates on the actions test, the, the works test for true and false conversion. Okay, so that's kind of putting it back 
in its original writing, right? But let's ask the same question for us now. What is it about these ideas, true and false conversion, that should spark interest in us? Why should we be so interested in this whole idea of true and false conversion? And let me just say a few things. We live in a culture that is drowning in false conversion. Do you know that? Our culture is drowning in false conversion. Multitudes of people call themselves Christian, but in reality, they are moving down a path to bust hell wide open. Multitudes of people name the name of Christ, but it says they do not depart from iniquity, like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Whole scores of people who call Jesus Lord. They call Him Lord. They say that they're Christians. And yet in that last day, according to Matthew 7, Jesus is going to say to them, Depart from Me, I never knew you. This is false conversion. These are false converts. In fact, let me do this little test real quick. If you have ever been a false convert in here, what I mean by that is you would have said you were a Christian, but in reality, you weren't a Christian. Throw a hand up. Look around you. This is the culture that you live in. And many, many, many people walking into false conversion thinking that they are saved and the reality is they are not. So this carries a lot of weight for us today, okay? And listen, every person, every person who is a true convert, you need to be able to do two things. If you're a true convert, you need to be able to do two things. You need to know with certainty. You need to be able to know with certainty that, that you are you have assurance in Christ. This God wants this from you. First John 5 13, these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. You need to know how to walk into true biblical assurance. God wants this from true converts. And number two is this: you need to know how to lead false converts to Christ and how to build in the true converts a biblical assurance. You need to know how to do these things, okay? And so as we walk in this passage that really highlights this, I want you to give me your ear, okay? Give your ear to the Word of God. So, we're about to move into just verse-by-verse exposition, walking through this passage. But before we do that, I want to lay down some groundwork about the structure. I feel like if I do this, this will help you get an idea of the structure of this passage that we're in. I think it will help you, okay? So first thing that I want to highlight, first thing I want you to see is this idea of profession, of, of profession of faith or, or saying something. Okay, You can say something, then we have to determine is it true or is it false. So I want you to see that idea. And you can see that clearly in a repetitive phrase in this passage. Okay, The repetitive phrase is found in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9. It's the exact same phrase in the Greek. And it says, whoever says, you hear the profession? Whoever says, whoever says, whoever says, it says, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar, the truth out of him. You see the false profession. Verse 6, he, whoever says, he abides in him, ought himself to walk just as he also walked. Verse 9, whoever says, he is in the light and hates his brothers in darkness until now. So I want you to see the profession side of it. The, the what you speak. You can speak something. I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. I'm in the light. And that may or may not be the reality. Okay? Alright, second thing that I want you to see here. Uh, the focus on us being able to discern between 
true and false professions. Whether or not that profession of faith is true or false. There's a, there's a focus of us being able to discern that. This passage is going to help us learn how to discern that. And you see that also from a repetitive phrase. Verse, verse 3 says, Now by this we know, by this we know that we know Him. Or by this we know that we have come to know Him. Same exact phrase in, in verse 5b. So it's the second part of verse 5. By this we know that we are in Him. So see, there's this push that we need to be able to discern. By this we know. By this we know. You might hear something like, well, we can't know. Only God knows those things. That's a half-truth. Okay? It's true. Only God ultimately knows where someone's soul is, where my soul is, where your soul is. Only God ultimately knows. But He doesn't want us walking around in darkness. He says, by this you know that you know Him. By this you may know that you are in Him. You get that? We're supposed to discern between... True and false conversion. Now think about this. How were you taught when you were growing up? If you grew up around church things, how were you taught to finish that phrase? By this we know that we know Him. And then what were you taught to finish that with? By this we know that we know Him because you walked the aisle one time. Is that what you're taught? By this we know that we know Him because you prayed a salvation prayer. By this you know because you were baptized. Or by this you know because of some past experience. Is that the way that you were taught? Because I think many of us were probably taught that way. In fact, there's a, there's a story. If you ever heard Dustin, Dustin tell his testimony, you hear him talk about how he became a false convert. And the way he became a false convert, he heard the gospel. And then at the end of that gospel, gospel truth, he heard this little perverted version of faith. You know, uh, just bow your head. Raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell. Okay, I'm for that. Alright, and then, and then he supposedly gets saved. He walks down front and somebody hands him a spiritual birthday card. And says, if Satan ever tells you that you're, that you're lost, you show him this card. Now, that's silly, right? And we all hear that and we think it's silly, but these are things I'm talking about. By this you know, not because of a spiritual birthday card or maybe something that's even not as silly as that. By this you know, and this, this passage of Scripture is meant to teach us how to know, how to discern. Okay? Let me give you a couple more structural things in this passage here. There's really, you can break it down into three sections, okay? And now you see this at the top of your study guide. You can break it down into three sections. Chapter 2, verse 3 through 5a, which means the first part of verse 5. You can see it's obedience to the Word of God. Obedience to the Word as a test of true and false conversion. Alright, from verse 5b to verse 6, you see Christ's likeness. As a test of true and false conversion. In verses 7 through 11, you see love for the brethren as a test of true and false conversion. So you have three tests here, and you can break it down in those sections. So just to summarize those sections first section is if you know him, you'll obey his word. Second section is if you are in him, you'll be marked by Christ's likeness. And then the third section is if you are in the light, you will love the church. So let's walk into it, okay? Verse by verse. I want your eyes on it. Let's start in verse 3 and let's read it. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Okay? This is a general principle laid out. Okay, just a general principle. By this you know that you know Him that you keep His commandments. It's a general principle. In just a moment, the next verse and the next verse... It's going to give us uh, so, some examples or some application, a negative application, a positive application of that general principle. But here's the principle. By this you know that you know Him, that you keep His commandments. This is what the verse says here. 
So let's think about a few things. What does it mean to know Him right now? To, to know Him in this verse. What does it mean to know Him? This is not talking about the continued uh, getting to know God of sanctification. This is not talking about we know facts about God like any lost person can know. This is talking about knowing God. That decisive moment where we, you went from not knowing God to knowing God. This is what I ask people often. I say, how did you come to know the Lord? This is know God in a saving sense, in a salvation sense. So here's the question. How do you know that you know Him? This, has, this is the idea of salvation here. How do you know that you know Him? I want you to see this. Assurance. How do you know that you know Him? Assurance in this verse is rooted in present reality. Right now, present reality, not in past experience. Do you see that from this verse? I like the way the ESV said it. It says, by this we know that we have come to know Him. That's past tense. By this we know that we have come to know Him, past tense. And then what does He say? And He points you to the present reality of your life right now for assurance. Okay? So notice what it does not say. So hear me out on this. Notice what it does not say. It does not say we will come to know Him in the future if we keep His commandments. It doesn't say that at all, okay? This is not obedience for salvation, but obedience to His Word as evidence of salvation. Obedience for salvation is heresy and will lead you to hell. But obedience as evidence of salvation is what we're talking about here, okay? Now, what else did He not say? It does not say, we know that we have come to know Him in the past because of some past experience that happened. It doesn't say that. It yanks you into the present reality. So assurance of salvation, biblically, is rooted in present reality. And here's two ways I like to think about it. The present reality of looking in and looking up. And here's what I mean. The present reality, you look in, is there life? Is there the life of God in the soul of this man? So assurance is not from looking at some situation back in the past. This verse says you know that you have come to know Him by looking in right now that you keep His commandments. And then I said, that's looking in. Looking up is who is your faith in right now? Now that, we don't get into that in this section, but I just want to mention that. This looking in and looking up. We look up and say, who is your faith in now? Is your faith, is your hope in the Holy One who died on the cross for your sins? who was buried, who's risen from the grave, who stands as Savior of the universe, is your hope in Him. So it's looking in and it's looking up. Now in this section, it focuses, on, focuses in on looking in. Self-examination. Okay? Now it says right here, by this you know that you know Him that you keep His commandments. So here, I want to highlight this. Keep His commandments. This is not just, just plain moralism. You know what I mean by that? This is not, you know that you know Him because you live a decent life and you ain't never hurt nobody. You understand that? That's not what this is saying. This is referring to someone with a heart for God's commandments. Someone with a heart for God's Word. Someone with a lean to, I want to obey God's Word. And you see obedience to God's Word lived out in their life. It's not just moralism. This is a heart for the truth of the commandments of God's Word, okay? So, a love for God's Word and a heart to obey God's Word is evidence, according to this general principle, of true conversion. But a disinterest in God's Word and a life of disobedience is evidence of 
a false conversion. You hear me out there? You see that from this general principle, okay? Alright, verse 4. Now we're going to get, a, we're going to get a, a negative example or a negative application to that principle just laid out. Whoever says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And I mainly want to say to you, beware of this, please. From the bottom of my heart, I say beware of this. That It's possible for you to say, I know him. And then your life shows that you're not in him. That you don't truly know him. So beware of this. Is this you? Could the charge of Titus 1.16 be applied to your life? In Titus 1.16, you remember what he says? He says, they profess to know him, but in works they deny him. Could that be charged to you? They profess to know him, but in works they deny him. There will be many, many false converts exposed at the day of judgment. Jesus told us that many people will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. There will be many false converts exposed in the last day. Will you be one of them? And I ask that question for self-examination from the bottom of my heart. Do you profess to know God and yet have no heart for His commandments, no heart for His word? What you do with God's Word says a lot about you. If you profess faith and have no heart for His commandments, that verse just said, liar. Because you profess to know Him, but your profession is a lie. You don't. So liar is the charge. And my encouragement to anyone here concerned about that is agree with God. Agree with Him. Yes, Lord, I have lied. I have been lying. And guess what? You see all those hands go up? Said they once were false converts. Me too. Christ Jesus died for my lies as a false convert. He laid down His life for them. You're still breathing, so His arms are still open of mercy. So if you're concerned of being a false convert, I plead with you, come to Christ and find forgiveness. Truly turn to Him. A good good verse that kind of goes alongside this that I want you to see is James 1.22. You don't have to flip there. But James 1.22 says, Be doers... Of the word, not hearers only. Listen, deceiving yourselves. See what happens? Be doers of the word. This is, you know that you know him, you keep his commandments. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And, and what if you're just a hearer only? You deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Don't continue on in the deception until you go to hell forever saying, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. But come to Christ. Verse 5a. But whoever keeps His Word. This is, the, this is the positive example. You ready? So now we've got the positive. We've got the negative example. Verse 4. Now we've got the positive example of this general principle here. Listen. But whoever keeps His Word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. So here, here's what I think should happen with this verse. If you're a true convert in here, you truly are, you truly do know Him, you should be encouraged by this right here. Do you see in yourself a heart for God's Word? Do you see in yourself an inclination to obey obey God's Word? You know who's doing that in you? You know who is at work in you to make you love God's Word? You know who's at work in you to cause you to want to obey God's Word? Who's doing that? That is God Almighty at work in you, and you ought to be encouraged as a true convert. 
I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. Why? Why do you have a love for God's Word in your heart, true convert? Why do you have that? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus because He's at work in you. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. This is evidence of love for God's Word, obedience to God's Word, that He is at work in you, true convert. The last phrase there that I read just now says, In Him truly the love of God is perfected. So the one that keeps God's Word, it says, In Him truly. Listen, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. Now there's some different opinions on what that little phrase means. It all hinges on what does love of God mean. Does it mean our love for God as believers? Or does it mean uh, the love of God as in uh, God's love for us? What, what is, there's different opinions on that. Let me give you... Just what I lean toward. When he says, if you keep his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This is the love of God, the love that a true convert has for God, as is evidence in his obedience. Okay, so this is, it's been, the, the love of God is perfected, it's made complete, it's evidenced by his obedience. Okay, so let me give you some other verses. 1 John 5 3 says something similar. It says this. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So John, you don't have to flip there. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, the love of God perfected in these things. You will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves me. So this, this is the true convert put before you. They love God. They love God and it's evidenced by a love for His Word and an inclination to obey God at His Word. Next section, 1 John 2, verse 5b to verse 6. So 5b right there, I'm going to start. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. So what we, what we see here is Christ's likeness. Christ's likeness, right? You walk just as He walked. Walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Christ's likeness. Everybody with me on that? So we see Christ's likeness as evidence of genuine conversion right here. Okay, so again, we see assurance of salvation is rooted not in the past, but in a present reality. By this you know, by this you may know that you are in Him. How? Because you walk in the same way. You ought to walk in the same way. Anybody that says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's a present reality. And I really want us to pick that up, okay? Because here's what I've seen. I've seen what I think are true converts completely disturbed when they shouldn't be disturbed. Disturbed about assurance of salvation. True converts, but they can't seem to land on a place of assurance of salvation. You know why? Because they keep looking to the past and we're trying to find something there. But the Bible doesn't do that. It says, look in, self-examination, look up to the one that you have faith in right now. It's a present reality. And, and, now, and listen to this. This is interesting. Not only are true converts having problems coming to a place of assurance of salvation, but I've seen false converts completely comforted in their assurance when they ought not to be. And you know why they are? Because they're looking back to some past experience, some past prayer. 
Some past walking down the aisle. Some past thing that they did. So even some past change in life. And they're looking back to that and they've got this false assurance and you look at their life right now and they are obviously dead in their sins. At least as much as can be humanly told. Some more scripture that, that makes this point of Christ's likeness as evidence of true conversion. <coughs> Romans 8.29 Romans 8.29 says, Whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. Do you hear that? This is God's plan. This is God's work in your life. If He has saved you, that verse says, Whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. This is what He's doing in your life. Uh, Galatians, I'm just going to refer to this section of Scripture. Galatians 5, 19-23. If you go back and read Galatians 5, 19-23, you've got a list of bad, characteristics, sinful lifestyle. And you've got a, a list of the fruits of the Spirit, of, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those Christ-like things, okay? you got two lists there. And at the end of that bad list, it says something like <coughs> that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You practice those bad, that list of bad sins there, you practice that. He says you show yourself to not truly have faith. You show yourself to not truly be in Christ. But then the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of someone really in Christ, and it shows love, joy, it's, it's these characteristics of Christ. Now, I mentioned that verse mainly, well, well, I guess mainly because it's clear, but, but secondly, because this is the passage of Scripture that, that took two of the closest people in my life, Dustin Cook and Lydia, and my wife, Lydia. And both of them were yanked out of their false conversion by that verse because they read through that list and they realized, they saw that list and they realized, that's my life. And that verse just said, anybody who practices these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And God shook them out of their false conversion and through that they came to the living Savior who really died for their sins and for the first time they truly put their hope in Him. So there's other places in Scripture that do this. So I want to encourage you, test yourself. Test yourself. Is your life marked by Christ's likeness? Think about Jesus. The selfless one who, who He just gave Himself for others, especially at the cross, right? The obedient one who always did what pleased the Father. Christ Jesus, the one on the mission, that's on the mission to make disciples and be a fisher of men, to preach the God. He's on this. Think about Christ. Is your life marked? Is it marked by Christ's likeness? Now, obviously, obviously, I hope I don't have to say this. I'm not talking about perfection here. But I'm talking about a difference, a life. There's so many times that the unbelieving world uses this excuse. And it is an excuse. It's a half-truth. Well, everybody sins. Nobody's perfect. And when they say things like that, everybody's saying nobody's perfect. Oftentimes, what they mean is I look just like the world. I'm sinful just like the world. There's no victory in sin in my life. But hey, that's how everybody else is. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. That's a false mindset about regeneration and sanctification. When somebody is saved, they get a new heart. The Spirit of God comes to indwell them. And things change. I don't mean perfection, but things change, no doubt. And so when I say Christ-likeness, this is what I mean. And honestly, this verse 6 really feels like a charge, doesn't it? He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. So let me put that charge on you. Be selfless like Christ. Be obedient like Christ. Be on the mission like Christ. And so prove yourself to be truly saved. You say, wait a minute, can you talk like that? Are you supposed to say things like prove yourself to be saved? Are you supposed to say stuff like that? 
Listen to Matthew 3.8. Listen to what John the Baptist said. He looks at these people and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit that shows you have real repentance. Or Paul said this. Paul said he preached this everywhere. Everywhere that he went. Jew and Gentile alike. In Acts 26 verse 20. Paul says this. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So be like Christ. Walk as He walked. And show yourself to be a true disciple. Alright, verse 7 and 8. Now this is, let me say this real quick before we read it. This is really the beginning of the, of the love test, right? The, the, the test of love your brethren and whether or not there's true or false conversion. That runs from verse 7 through 11. And verse 7 and 8 is kind of like an introduction into that, okay? So let's read it. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, or on the other hand, or in the same way, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in Him and in, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now this is obviously talking about a test of love, because if you keep... You keep rolling into verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11. We're talking about love the brethren, hate the brethren. Okay, so it's obviously the commandment here is talking about love your brethren. You can also see that from other places of John's writings in his gospel. In his second and third John, you can see the same language of old and new commandment. And he's speaking about love your brethren. So this is the commandment that we're talking about. So it's as if he says, you know that you really know him, that you keep his commandments. Plural. Plural. You know that you know Him when, you, when there's Christ-likeness. Okay? Just this overall characteristic. And then it's like right here, He's going to zone in on one of those commandments. He's going to zone in on one of those characteristics of Jesus. Okay, And the one He's going to zone in on is love. And that's why it's in the singular in verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment. Singular, not plural, but singular now. I think this is the reason... That John begins, he begins this section with beloved, verse, verse 7. Mine says brethren, some says beloved. The idea there is beloved, the ones that I love deeply. The one, I'm writing to you, the ones whom I love. And that's very fitting because he's about to push them to love one another. He's about to lay this love one another test before them. Okay, so think about this. How could this commandment, I just read verse 7 and 8 to you. How could this commandment be old and new? Because it just said the same commandment is old. It's an old commandment. And then he said it's a new commandment. How can it be both? And I want to make sure you see clearly that it's talking about both. L listen to the, the way verse 8 transitions in the ESV. At the same time, it is a new commandment. So he said, hey, here's this old commandment. It's not new. But at the same time, it's a new commandment. You see that? So we're talking about the same commandment. So in a sense, it's old. In a sense, it's New, or the NAS says it like this in verse 8. On the other hand, a new commandment I bring before you. On the other hand. So you got it's old and you got it's new. So in what sense is this commandment old? Verse 7 says, Which you have had from the beginning. Which you have had from the beginning. Meaning this command of love one another, this command of love the brethren, love the church, it's foundational. It's a foundational command. It's rooted in the Old Testament. They asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandments? And He yanks into the Old Testament and pulls out second greatest commandment. Love. Love others. 
Jesus emphasized it in, in, in his gospels. This, this, he, in fact, he adds new weight to it and fresh weight to it. So this is an old commandment. It's not a new thing for the people that he's writing to. It's rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus emphasized it. The apostles taught it. And they've been told this since the very beginning of their walk with God. This is foundational. It's old. John is telling them this is not a novel idea. I'm not bringing a novelty before you. This idea of, of novelty, of it's, a, it's a fresh experience. It's a new and fresh experience. In fact, I would encourage you to be warned about anything that's a Christian novelty that you cannot root in the Old Testament and in the Gospels and in the writings of the Apostles. That's a big thing nowadays, right? It's fresh and it's new and it's awesome. But give me the Word. Is it foundational? That's what I want to know. And that's the idea. It's a foundational command. It's old. And, but, but what about in verse 8? In what sense is the command to love one another? In what sense is it new? Because it says it's new as well. It says in there, verse 8, which thing is true in Him and in you. In fact, let me read the whole thing again. Listen. Verse 7 and 8. Beloved, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. That's the foundational the old command is the word which you heard from the beginning. That's foundational. Verse 8. But on the other hand, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Do you see that? Which is in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. If you know what those last two phrases mean, we start to get an idea of what do you mean it's new? What do you mean that it's new? Which thing is true in Him and true in you. This is the idea. It's new in that it is freshly lived out by the body of Christ. It's freshly lived out in Christ and in you. It's lived out in you. So, so it's a foundational command, but it's freshly in a new way lived out in you. And then it says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So what He does is He draws our minds toward this interesting age in which we live. Oh, and it's interesting, right? It's, is it a dark age in which we live? Absolutely. It's dark and corrupt. But it's not all dark. And there's coming a time when, when this fullness of light and darkness is no more. And it's, it's just this fullness of light. Nothing but light. Sin is no more. And we're coming to that time. But right now we live in an age where what? Where darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. And this is the way we should view the age that we live in. Not just darkness, but the light is overtaking the darkness. And we should think about our lives in this generation, in this age, just like that. That the light of Jesus Christ and the light of His gospel and the light of His church is overtaking the darkness. And one day it will be full-fledged, nothing but light from the face of Jesus. It's coming. And so in light of that, this is a new and fresh command. And that you are newly and freshly empowered to obey this command to love one another. In this new age. Go with me to verse 9. Here we're going, to see the, we're going to see the false profession of being in the light. Saying you're in the light. But you hate your brethren. He who says he is in the light. And hates his brother. Is in darkness. Until now. You see it? So you say you're in the light. But. The way you feel towards the body of Christ, the way you feel towards them, it, it shows that you're not in the light. You're actually in darkness. So what we have here. Now, now, what's interesting about this verse and really into verse 10 and 11 is there's no gray area here. Do you see that? 
I mean, literally, it's love the brethren, hate the brethren. Verse 9, hate the brethren. Verse 10, love the brethren. Verse 11, hate the brethren. There's no gray area. It's love and it's hate, okay? So, so, so what are you supposed to see in that? What's going on with this no gray? I mean, you're one or the other. You're not, there's no gray area that is given here. So here's the, some things that I think we can ask that can help us understand what it means when it says, you say you're in the light, but you hate your brother. What does it mean to hate your brothers? Think about it like this. What do you think it looked like? Because obviously this is what was going on in the life of those, those false converts in 1 John 2.19. Remember that? Those ones that left? Obviously what was happening there is they were saying they knew Him, but it's not true. And they're saying they're in the light, but they hate the brethren. So what did it look like in their lives? What do you think it looked like? And here's what we got to do. We have to have another category for hate the brethren that's not just ISIS. You understand that? I don't think this group of people that left were cutting off Christians' heads. You understand what I'm saying? There's another layer. So when you think hate the brethren, you're not just supposed to think ISIS. You're not, that's not the, the layer that you go. So what are you supposed to be thinking? What do you think hatred toward the brethren looked like in the life of those false converts in 1 John 2.19? Probably looked something like this. Disinterested. Imagine it. Just disinterested in the body of Christ. Unsatisfied in the body of Christ. Isolating yourself from the body of Christ. Eventually you leave. Eventually you stop coming. You really don't want any part outside of just the tradition of being somewhere on Sunday. Hatred of the brother. So my question is, is this you? So as we come back to this idea of testing yourself, examine yourself, is this you? Does your love for the church and your connection and involvement uh, hooked in to the church of Jesus Christ? I mean, brothers and sisters that love Christ. Does it show yourself to be a true convert or a false convert? And on the one hand, if it's false convert, you need to be warned to come to Christ. And if it's a true convert, you need to be encouraged. That that's God at work in you. Verse 10. What's going to happen in verse 10 and 11? So we got this idea of it. Love or hate, the church says something about true or false conversion. And in verse 10, it's going to give us an illustration in a positive light. And verse 11 is going to give us an illustration in a negative light. Okay, so, so, so here's what we're going to see in verse 10 and 11. Let me read it again. Verse 10, the positive light. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there's no cause for stumbling in him. And here's the... Negative illustration. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So he who loves his brother, is this you? Is this you? What do you think about when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ? What's it do to your heart? And if this is you and you say, yeah, man, that's... God's done that. Just like the obedience to the commands thing. Just like the Christ-likeness. I mean, nobody's talking about perfection here, obviously. But there's something going on. And in the same way, man, I love the brethren. I love the church of Jesus Christ. I want to be hooked in. I want to be there. Is that you? If it is, be encouraged. You know who's doing that in you? That's God at work. That's God at work among us. And verse 10 says that you are like this. It's like you're, the way it says the illustration, it's like you're walking in this path 
You're walking in this path. This is what you're like if you love the brethren. You're walking in this path and it's just like a bright light is shining. So you see everything. You have no reason to stumble over there because you see everything. You have no reason to make others stumble because you see everything. Can you see that picture of somebody walking that path and the bright light is shining and there's nothing to trip over? This is the picture. This is what he puts. He said, this is what you're like. But if you hate the brethren, and remember, I'm not just talking about ISIS here. I'm talking about like those false converts in 1 John 2.19. It gives you this picture. You're like someone walking in a path, but it's complete darkness. You can't see a thing. You're walking the path, but you cannot see. You don't know where you're going. You are wandering aimlessly. And it says at the very end, the darkness has blinded his eyes, which means the darkness, hear me out, is not passive. The darkness is active. The darkness is on the attack, blinding the eyes. Do you see that? To fill the weight of that, I want to give you a quote from Danny Aiken. I was reading his commentary on this and uh, I really like this quote. Listen to it. It's about that idea of the darkness not being passive but active. Listen. Unethical behavior, and what he means is just, you know, he's in the context of what he's saying is the stuff that shows yourself to be a false convert. Not obeying his commands, no Christ likeness, no love for the brethren. This unethical behavior, it not only contradicts the claim to be Christian, it actually contributes to a spiritual downfall. You hear what he's saying? He said, not only does it show you not to be a Christian, but it contributes to your spiritual down spiral. Spiritual darkness is not a passive reality. It goes on the offensive, which is what it says. The darkness has blinded their eyes. It goes on the offensive. Darkness attacks those living in it so that they become increasingly trapped in this realm of confusion and blindness. Is what, that's what it said. He does not know where he's going. In verse 11. So hear me out. If you're walking in darkness but you're professing to be in the light, I plead with you to turn from it now before it's too late. If you remain in your false assurance, your heart will only grow harder. Your confusion will only increase. And darkness will hold a tighter and tighter and tighter grip on you until maybe it's too late. So I plead with you, according to this verse, the darkness, they're in the darkness and yet the darkness is blinding their eyes. And here's the truth. It's not too late. If you're hearing my voice right now, it's not too late. Because Christ Jesus is the light of the world, right? He's the light of the world. He's the light of the world. He came to save sinners. You see how many false converts threw their hand up that God has saved? Because they were walking in darkness and before the darkness gripped them and blinded them to a place to where it was too late, He shined His light of the cross of Jesus Christ where He died for sinners like me and you. He laid down His life for us. The lies. The deceit. The professing to know Him but not really know Him. He laid down His life at the cross for sinners like me and you. You can come to Him. But come to Him before the darkness overtakes you. Let me give a quick application. Okay, I, I really was... Um, I mean, I had a million applications. It's like, Lord, I don't know where to go. What do I do? And this is the direction I think I want to encourage us in. Okay, Just an application and application of this text of Scripture. Let's be a church. So, so Grace Community Church, listen to me. Let's be a church 
that is strong in this doctrine. Talking about doctrine here. Let's be a church that's strong in this doctrine of true and false conversion. Okay? Or some people call it biblical assurance. Let us be strong in this doctrine of biblical assurance. Let's hold fast to the biblical standard of genuine conversion. Okay, there's a biblical standard of like, yes, that's genuine conversion. Let's hold fast to it and, and be immovable, be un, unwavering in it, okay? And this means we're going to need to understand this doctrine. It means we need to hold deep convictions over this doctrine. And we need to be able to explain this doctrine, okay? You say, well, why is that the application you picked? Okay, listen. The church in our culture, from my experience and I think many others, is very, very weak. Church in our culture is very weak in this doctrine of true and false conversion. Maybe it's due to ignorance. Maybe it's due to ungodly disagreement where you see it in the world, but you just disagree. But either way, our churches are very weak in this doctrine. And, and because of this weakness, it has caused great... I hope, you, I hope you know this. It has caused great harm to the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, has suffered great harm because of weak views of biblical assurance and true and false conversion. So, so let me just get you to think about a few of those harming effects for the church, okay? Because of the church's weakness in this doctrine, hell-bound false converts go unchallenged. Why? Because there's no framework for maybe they're not really saying, maybe they're just professing it, but they're not. And so they go unchallenged in their false conversion straight to hell. Because of church's weakness, the, uh, ch different churches' weaknesses in this doctrine, hell-bound false converts are not only going unchallenged, but they're even being falsely comforted in their sin. They're being falsely comforted in their false conversion. I remember a guy coming under conviction of the Spirit. I remember it. The Spirit of God convicted him. He's worried about his eternity. It seems like for the first time in his life, and he goes to a leader in the church and says, hey man, just the fact that you're worried about that means you're fine. Bull. It's not true. He needed to turn his eyes to Christ, the one who laid down his life for him. And so we give false assurance. It's what the prophet said. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's what false prophets say. Peace, peace. When no, there is no peace. So the weakness in this doctrine, it's made churches full of unbelievers under the guise of being Christians, even in leadership in the churches in our culture. It's a big deal. This has caused great harm. And, there's, and, and now, and, and some of the fruit of this is there's a terrible witness in the world, right? I think about, I think about somebody put something, I think, on, on uh, social media about the numbers of people coming out of the, the voting polls that were evangelical. And it was like some ridiculous number. And we were like, oh, where are all these people at? And somebody said something like, well, great, we're having a revival next Sunday. Everybody's going to be there. You know? Because the reality is, is that's the culture you live in. And there's so much shame that comes, the fruit of that, so much shame to the name of Christ at times because people coming under the name of Christ, unchallenged by Christians, Okay? Even falsely comforted at times, doing things that bring shame to the name of Christ. So this has caused great harm to the church of Jesus. So because of that, let us be a church that's strong in this doctrine. Okay? Strong in this doctrine. And, and, and listen, as we do that, it's going to affect us in a couple ways. One way it's going to affect us is the way we deal with one another. If we're strong in this doctrine of biblical assurance, it's going to affect the way we deal with each other. Okay? And here's what I mean. Imagine us being a people 
going to all-out war for each other for biblical assurance. Imagine that. Imagine a people with a mindset that is no member left behind. No member left behind fighting that none of us end up in hell. Imagine that kind of mindset. Imagine that mindset of people devoted. I mean devoted to one another's holiness and faith, which takes the true, the true convert and it increases his assurance. Imagine that. Imagine that. And this is biblical. Let me give you one verse to tell you, because you might say, is that biblical? And that's what you need to ask, by the way. Let me show you quickly this biblical. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Listen to this. The warning is, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Listen. Beware, lest there be an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He's warning about these things that we're talking about, right? And so I wonder what he's going to say next to fight against that departing from Jesus. What's he going to say next that we would, that we would fight against being that 1 John 2.19? They left and they showed they were never of us. What's he going to say? In verse 13 says, But exhort one another. You see how it went straight to one another? But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Imagine that. Among us, no one getting, getting taken into the deception of false conversion to the very end. But we going after this together. And not only that, but imagine us exhorting one another and building up, putting Jesus and what He's done before each other's eyes and pushing each other towards holiness, which does what for the true convert? And increases their assurance. So I say let's go to war with this. Uh, last thing I'll say here is that if we have a strong view of biblical assurance of true and false conversion, it'll affect the way we deal with the world. Okay, It'll affect the way we deal with the world. Satan, as we've already said, has so many people trapped in this deception of false conversion. So just an example that I gave earlier. He used those little half-truths, right? Some, you talk to somebody. I mean, I've talked to many, many people like this, walking in obvious sin, obviously in the world, even, you know, even talking to people coming into the, the abortion places or something like that. I've talked to and they look at it and they say something like this. It's a half-truth. They say, like I said earlier, everybody sins. Nobody's perfect. And so you see how that... Tra That's just a one, one tiny example of Satan trapping people in this deception. They don't see the biblical realities of what God does in the heart of a person. Regeneration and sanctification and great high priest becomes yours. The Spirit of God indwells you. They don't understand that that's what happens when someone is saved. So you don't continue on just saying the half-truth. Everybody's in. Understand that trap? That's a deception. It's a, it's a trap. And in this world full of false conversion, we must... So this, is why I said, this is why I said it's got to affect the way, we, the way we deal with the world. Because we have to do evangelism in that culture. Did you just say all the hands that went up? That's the culture that we mainly, we don't just do evangelism towards. We, 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 love, we want to love atheists, right? We want to love Muslims. We want to love them and share the, the, the life-giving Word of God with them in hopes that they would come. We want that. But, but what are you mainly going to come across in your culture? So what I want to encourage you is you have to be able to do that in this culture. So if, you, if we have a strong biblical doctrine of biblical assurance, it will affect the way we do evangelism in this world. Okay? Alright, let's pray. God, I just want to ask you again the same thing, Lord. 
I asked you a moment ago. God, I pray that if there's any here, God, if there's someone here, Lord, that has professed to know You, but they don't really, God, I pray You disturb them. God, disturb them deep in their soul, Lord. That they are being deceived, God. And I pray, Lord, that they would not land on that last day claiming to know You, God, and be cast into hell forever. Lord, save their souls. God, I pray against pride. Don't let pride stop people, Lord, from coming to You. God, I pray You would break down their pride and You'd cause them to cast it far aside, Lord, and humbly come before Your throne, come before Your cross. God, please save souls in here. And God, use us to go out into the world with this, Lord. To witness to the world, God, help us. And God, I thank You. Thank You, Lord, so much that You desire for us to have assurance that those who are... And I pray for that, God, that there's anybody here that's disturbed that shouldn't be disturbed, God, that You would help them. And God, I pray that those who are truly Yours, those who are truly in the light, that You would fill them with assurance, God, that comes from You. I pray You'd fill them with it, Lord, as if they look You in the face, God, and You say to them, You are mine. God, give them assurance, Lord. And God, I pray You would make us a people. And God, thank You that You want us to know that we have eternal life. And I pray You make us a people that know. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.